Hello. Thank you for joining me. My name is Donovan from Salt of the Streets, and this is the review preview for the months of April and May. Our April book, our April book was two of the novellas out of Different Seasons by Stephen King. We read Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, as well as The Body. These two movies have been turned into, or these two books have been turned into movies that we've seen, obviously, The Shawshank Redemption, and The Body was turned into a movie called Stand By Me. Both classics. No question, obviously, why these things were made into movies, because these fucking books were fantastic. Our May book, before we go too far, is, uh, oh, upside down, <laughs> By the People by Charles Murray. Excellent selection. I believe that I bought this with you in Port Townsend on a search for book club books. I believe this is correct. So I've had this one for a little while, and it was perfect off the shelf. So let's talk first about different seasons. Also, I want to address, obviously, we have given up on the class type attire, right? We're out here. We're the plebes now. This is just what we're doing. We're, we're in the shirts of the people. This is the Carhartt. We're doing it. Okay, so where's so, your fucking Argyle? Yeah, we're out of here. Okay, so different seasons, right? Um, this is a great book. I've said this about the last few fiction books that I've read. And if you remember, if you've been doing this book club since the beginning, you remember my first one. I was like, I'm really nervous for the fiction book in October, like seven months from now, because I don't read fiction and I don't know what to do. And I, it's, I'm way past that now. I'm really, really enjoying the fiction thing. And I'm very proud of it. I'm very happy with it. Thank you, sir. I'm very proud of you. Yes. Thank you for getting me into this. It's a whole um, world. I am enjoying the fiction more not... For the escape, right? Because it doesn't like that doesn't do it for me. And I haven't really read any fantasy novels yet. You know, I've done nonfiction, but not proper like fantasy novels of a whole different world that's created and like any of that type of stuff. Like still so, grounded in a reality you can yes, understand. Yes, but I am appreciating it for being able to take a look at the writing in itself, the purity of the writing, as well as being able to relate things from the text to my own life. That type of stuff I'm really enjoying. The, like you said, the grounded nonfiction, that it's still in earth, it's still of the world, um, and, but it isn't real. Yes. You know, so yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the books. It's um, a world you can recognize because it's a contemporary world. Yes. Yeah. I really enjoy the other books like this, like By the People, because I'm, I'm learning something. And mm -hmm. I enjoy learning things. It talks a lot about the founding and things like that, which I really enjoy. Um, but not having to learn something. They're not always being like facts to draw from it. I mm -hmm. really enjoy. And so we'll talk a little bit about Shawshank because I really enjoyed this one, but the body is really where it was at for me. That's really, really where this seemed like it. It yeah. seemed like you got, you were like, yeah, Shawshank has, has been great. Cause I ask you damn near every day at work, yeah. like, how's the book going? How's the book going? Yeah. And I'm very excited to get into these two. I'm almost done with my current book and then I'm going to dive into the mist. Another Stephen King novella. That was pretty short um, too. That was good. though. Yeah. And so then I will probably just piggyback off of that and just continue with those. Yes. I'll probably just try to run through the other stories in there because there's four total four of them yeah, yeah. and i didn't even look at the other ones i just did these two um so shashank the book is almost the movie to a t like they're almost the exact same thing there are a few minor details that are changed uh but the vast majority is really the same mostly there is kind of different characters doing different things you know there is in the movie the older character brooks who eventually leaves the prison and then commits suicide and he is the one that has the bird jake in the movie and in the book it's a different person that has jake like that's just a different character that has that and the overall spoiler alerts i mean you, you guys read the book but for the movie they're the overall grand plot of how andy dufresne escapes the prison and gets the money is slightly different um in the movie he is running the money laundering scheme for the warden and he's taking money off the top of that and putting that into a different bank account and in the book he has he liquidated his retirements and stuff like that before he went into prison and took that and put that into savings under a different a made-up person's name and that's the money that he uses to escape Based. Right. Very different. Um, not very different, but I think as far as the movie goes, it's a better ending for the movie um, to watch mm -hmm. it happen because it's more of like a revenge thing. So even as I was describing it, I had a hard time. I put revenge with asterisk around it because it's not it's not totally a revenge story. Like it is to the extent that the warden fucks over Andy Dufresne and he gets back at him by escaping prison. But the revenge that he gets isn't 
over the warden. It's over the entire system, the situation it's itself. The state. Yeah, yeah, the state. The state has wronged him, and it is that state that he defeats. It isn't just the warden. That's an underlying plot to it. So revenge, I even had a difficult time with that. Um, but I don't. I can't think of a different word, really, because he is getting over on the state, but he isn't getting retribution from it. He's escaping. He is just yeah. overall escaping from that, showing that he can remove himself from this situation that he has been wronged in, you know? Yeah, and I think in... In like a direct comparison thing, like, or in, in an analogy way, the warden represents the state. Yes. And you don't, the way to get revenge against the state is by escaping the state's power. Yes. And so I, th I think there's that underlying need for you to like, well, revenge feels right-ish. Yeah. But because, because it is fiction, because it is like an allegory on whatever is happening at that point, like the warden stands in for the state and he is getting revenge on the state by yes. escaping their power. So and, I, I think that feeling is justified to call it that. And he's almost shown, he is shown at a certain point when I don't remember the character's name, but he's like the James Dean, the cool young type character that comes in and has the story that could spring Andy Dufresne from jail. He's shown that he will never receive retribution from the state because he's tried to play their game and give in and work with them and thinking and hoping that that is going to ease this suffering and get him. And it does, it gets him to a better position in the prison, but he's still in prison. He is still in Shawshank. And he thinks because of the favor of the warden and the different guards that he has won, he still has a chance to potentially use this James Dean character and his story to get out of prison. But because he has played into the state's hand he has made himself invaluable to those characters and they can't let him go because that is how they're getting money that's how they're making money so when he is denied that ability for the james dean character to tell his story he has shown he'll never get that retribution it's impossible you will never get this from the state and that's when he turns to i mean he's working on the hole longer than that the hole in the wall that he escapes from longer than that but that's i think when he decides that this is the only way is for me to escape out of here i can't ever get out through the system they won't let me what was in his initial crime again it's murder right he gets hemmed up for murdering his wife and her lover but they find out later that there is potentially, I guess you don't ever find out for sure. Uh, um, crime but, of passion. But it's this, fine. Yeah, there's a, a character that gets introduced and then killed in the movie. And I don't think he gets killed in the book. I think it just gets transferred. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the movie, he gets killed by the warden. The warden has him shot in the yard Whoa. because he has a story that, that will free Andy Dufresne from prison. And that is that he was jail or cellmates with somebody in a different prison who confessed to the murder that Andy Dufresne was in prison for not by name but by story mm -hmm. so and when he hears when this character hears the story when he gets to Shawshank he recognizes holy shit this is what this guy's talking about Andy Dufresne is actually innocent Yes, but that guy in the book, he gets transferred to a different jail. And mm -hmm. then at that point, he's like in a better position to get out sooner or something like that. So it doesn't make sense for him to involve himself. And so he's been removed from the whole deal. So how much of it does it come into the story? Because I, I didn't read this one. I didn't listen to this one. Yep. Is him insisting on his innocence part of the story at all? Or is it just him going through this whole thing, being wronged by the system? It's not a consistent theme. In the beginning, he does. He says, like, I'm, I'm innocent. And Red says to him, everybody in here is innocent. Everybody in this prison is innocent. Everybody has been So it's wronged. not really about that. Right. It's yeah. because it's still like, you know, we're, we're system, all, we've all been fucked by the system, you know. Um, and it's kind of a joke that, like, obviously some of us are guilty. Mm -hmm. But all of our stories is that we didn't do it. So it, you saying you didn't yeah. do it is not unique in here. Yeah. And, and Red actually says he's the only guilty man in Shawshank because he's the only person willing to admit that, Red. Yeah, I was yeah, because he Morgan like Freeman. murdered his wife or something like that. Right? Uh, like, I don't. He did something I, Morgan up. Freeman did something. Yeah, Morgan I don't, Freeman did it. Yeah, I don't remember what he does, but I think it is murder. Um, but he yeah, so he's the only person in Shawshank that says that he is guilty. Mm, mm, okay. Yeah. So it does come up, but that's not the consistent you know theme of it. Yeah. Other than I need to get out because I don't belong here. You know. Yeah. 
but well, who belongs in prison yeah there's also obviously some themes here about hard work meticulous planning and being the smartest man in the room without anybody knowing it because Andy Dufresne is working actively with the warden with everybody and he steals the warden's shoes to help him get out of prison so there's there's definite themes of that um like I said after reading it there's no question why it was turned into a movie at all and I only mm -hmm. have two small readings from it uh but I think that they are really good they're just kind of elements of really excellent writing and this it is, is early Stephen King precisely yeah and so he's, this is he's, he's good this is from page 79 this is the copy of different seasons that i have i started with a different version that had less pages in it that i gave back to cleveland because i was killing me to not be able to write in here and yeah even, even this you can see it's that a, i've begun to make brackets i have side notes in here there's at least some dog ears yes yeah i have the dog ears for things i wanted to read on here but there's a ton of more things highlighted under like underlined in this now, the real question is are you going to go back reread it again so you can fully annotate um possibly Eventually. yeah possibly there's some things that i do revisit like definitely 1984 i always revisit and mm -hmm. this copy that i read for the book club was a new copy so mm -hmm. there was no annotations in that one but when i go back this next time next year probably i'll reread that same copy and yeah. i'll be able to see kind of how things have changed and so a lot of stuff is like especially the older ones are COVID related you know so as the years go on i'll be able to reflect back and be like oh my god that was the same thing you know this is yeah. an embodiment of this ideology like yeah and unfortunately i don't think 1984 will be, ever become too uh too distant in relation to no. our contemporary times no. <laughs> so this reading is from page 79 it's very short and um, this is when andy Dufresne is telling explaining his plan to red the plot that he has had this whole time of how he has money saved and now i need to do this and the person that he made up is peter stevens right that's this fabricated person that andy Dufresne has made which he's storing all of his money in so this is just a very small piece peter stevens is locked in a safety deposit box at the casco bank in portland and andy Dufresne is locked in a safe deposit box in shawshank he said tit for tat and the key that unlocks the box and the money and the new life is under a hunk of black glass in buxton hayfield told you this much so i'll tell you something else red for the last 20 years give or take i've been watching the papers with more than usual interest for news of any construction project in buxton i keep thinking that someday soon i'm going to read that they're putting a highway through there or erecting a new community hospital or building a shopping center burying my new life under 10 feet of concrete or spinning it into a swamp somewhere with a big load of fill and it was the top part the very first part that i really really enjoyed peter stevens is locked in a safety deposit box in casco bank in portland and Andy dufresne is locked in a safe deposit box at shawshank i like that a lot that's amazing writing that is fucking amazing writing yeah only a coked up nicotine fueled yes. writer could write that yes there was a couple <laughs> of things in here and especially in the body um the body that i think that i have that line picked out of here and if not i remember pretty clearly that it was it was about gordon looking uh, like some of the you know he had thought that it was it was teddy actually that teddy had had this thought many times as he laid on his back in his bed looking at the moon offset through the through the window pane it's like it was just so so perfect that not only has he thought about this the specific scenario when he stays up at night he is haunted by these thoughts looking at the moon offset in the window pane so amazing writing absolutely incredible this particular line is so fucking beautiful can i just say you pulled that out of fucking thin air as you looked into the ether to to pontificate that's the how line that you pulled it that's, that's how good the writing is it, and it's good because it affected you yes i like that i like yes. that a lot so this this is from page 105 and this is when red is talking but this is towards the very end of the book and red is talking about andy Dufresne and his escape from shawshank there are others here like me others who remember andy we're glad he's gone, but a little sad too. Some birds are not meant to be caged, that's all. Their feathers are too bright, their songs too sweet and wild. So you let them go. Or when you open the cage to feed them, they somehow fly out past you. And the part of you that knows it was wrong to imprison them in the first place rejoices. But still, the place where you live is that much more drab and empty for their departure. That paints a very different picture of prison than my like current view of prison yeah Ugh. it's it's incredible writing 
you know, um, and this is the first part. This is just above that. So I should read the whole thing, but it doesn't matter. Andy was the part of me they could never lock up. The part of me that will rejoice when the gates finally open for me and I walk out in my cheap suit with my $20 of mad money in my pocket. That part of me will rejoice no matter how old and broken and scared the rest of me is. I guess it's just that Andy had more of that part of me and used it better. Telling Jesus. you, yes, this is some of the best writing I've read so far. It really, really was incredible. I mean, there's Josh a Shane. reason he's the king, man. Yes. I mean, yes. You just don't follow his Twitter feed. Just read his books. You'll be all right. Not if you like this show. Don't follow his Twitter <laughs> don't feed. Follow no. his Twitter feed. So let's talk about The Body, right? The Body yes. turned into a movie called Stand By Me, which is a fucking great movie. The movie's fantastic. Mm -hmm. River Phoenix is in it. Um, baby River Phoenix. Yeah, Jerry O'Connell is in it. Uh, what are the, what are the, one of the, um, one of the Corys isn't it? Uh, no, Corey, no, no, it's Corey, Corey Haim, I think, that's in it. Yeah, and then I don't remember the name of the original of like the main actor in it, um, but it's a fantastic movie. Oh, oh yeah, okay, yes. okay, okay. So we're looking at uh, Will Wheaton. There you go, Will there Wheaton, go. and uh, River Phoenix, Jerry O'Connell, and Corey Feldman. It doesn't Corey even Feldman. look like Will Wheaton. That's so funny. He's a little baby. Yes, but before yes. before next gen. Will Whedon. This movie is incredible. If you haven't watched it, you absolutely should. It's 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 an amazing movie. It's I mean almost on par with the book. It's a great great movie. But the book the book is the book. So the book is always going to be better than movie. You know. Have you watched the movie at any point semi recently? No, I meant to watch it before today, but I didn't get uh, I didn't get it done. But I, I'll watch it this week. I, I was like, I might fucking watch it tonight. To be yeah. perfectly honest, that's yes. I mean because I've never actually seen the movie. I've never read the book. So I'm I'm like I want to let's start with the movie and then then I'll, then I'll hit the fucking book. Prime like has it. not been letting me buy movies on my phone. No, so I can't do it on my phone, and that's when I think of it as at work. And then last night I thought of it. I was like, "Fuck, mm. it's like eleven o'clock. I'm not going to watch this movie now." So it's too late. I yeah. will say, because you, you can't do it from the Prime app. Yeah. But if you go to like your browser, log into Amazon, buy it, then and then buy it, it there. You can watch there. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. So I'll probably end up doing that this week. You know, the off week from the show is always a little more entertainment content. Mm -hmm. So, um, so quick fact actually about this, and I'm curious. Please open up the book to the table of contents. Okay. Um, and find out where these four novellas are. Right? Do they yep. have subtitles on the? In the in the table of context, yes. So, um, the Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption. The subtitle is Hope Springs Eternal. Yes. And then the second one, which apparently was turned into a movie in 1998 called Apt Pupil. Okay. Never heard of that. The subtitle is Summer of Corruption. Yep. The body is uh, subtitled Fall uh, from Innocence. Yep. And then the breathing method, which. Um, According to Wikipedia, has a TBA, so apparently they might be making this into oh. some kind of a, a watchable thing. It's called a Winter's Tale. Yes. Um, did any of the the two stories, um, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and the Body, did Shawshank have any kind of uh, spring themes that you pulled from the initial from your reading? Um, no, because it's over like two and a half decades. You okay, know? he's in prison for a long time That's before he gets funny. out. Yeah, so it's a I, short story. Yeah, it's it's and then the body does that have any callbacks to fall? No, I think it's okay. probably more it's probably the larger theme the of hope springs eternal. That like it's this is a story of hope that he does finally get out and then fall from okay. innocence because this is a book about them traveling to see the body of another child. Yeah, he's who's like dead? A, yeah, he's a young teenager. So I think it's. You know, and the he, the one of the readings that I have is about Gordon Lachance kind of coming to the realization like this kid isn't a kid anymore. You know, mm -hmm. he's not gonna be able to do this, like he's not gonna be able to do this. So I, I think it did that that fall from innocence, that he's not innocent anymore. He's this fucking dead kid that's here that we're looking at, you know, that we just traveled for three days to look at. So do, do they know the guy? Do they know the kid? No, they, okay. they, they only you just knows, find out about it from as a yeah, reader. yeah. The, okay. the kid disappears, so they know his name because he disappears, and then someone finds out that um, Vern finds out from his brother as he's digging under the porch for trying to find some money. He hears his brother talk about how they found the body like a couple days ago. So that's Vern how, was digging under his porch to find money. <laughs> yeah, so there's a whole like a, a there's a ton of backstories in yeah. there, but one of them is that Vern. Vern buried a jar full of pennies 
X amount of time ago and then like lost the map. And so he knows it's under his porch, but doesn't know where. So periodically he'll go into there and just try and dig a bunch of fucking holes to try and find this jar of pennies. So he's under there digging for this jar of pennies and his brother and one of his friends comes out of the house and they're talking about how they found the body and they want it to be a secret and they want it whatever. And then eventually their friends find out. Kiefer Sutherland in the book. Um, And that's how the young boys end up going on their journey to find the body. That's fascinating. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so the body, I loved. Absolutely, hands down, this is top 10 books for me that that I've read. It's in in the top 10. It was absolutely incredible. Um, The same goes for... The same goes for this that it was with Shawshank. The vast majority of the story here is exactly the same as it in the movie. But there is so much more backstory here for the children, Gordon and Chris in particular, and their relationships with their families. And that is what I really, really enjoyed about this book because I could identify deeply with different aspects of both of their stories. Um, Gordon Lachance had an older brother named Dennis who was killed in a car accident. And Dennis was far and away the favorite of his parents. And so Gordon existed and ignored life for the entirety of his upbringing when Dennis was alive. And now that his brother is dead, there is a gaping hole in his parents' lives that he has no possible chance of filling. And so he's just continually trying to get attention in some way you know he even talks a couple times in the book that he's sitting at dinner and his parents are talking about his brother and they'll say like well someone please pass me the fucking potatoes and someone just hands him the potatoes they don't notice that he's just sworn like that he's doing he's acting out like this to try and gain some attention his parents just completely ignore him it's it's horrifically sad and the thing that i could identify with that was um so we're getting personal now we're doing it um when I was growing up, my sister is seven years older than me and her and my mother, because I'm the only boy, my parents were divorced. I grew up with my mom, my grandma and my sister. There was always a level of companionship that existed among them that I, I wanted, you know, that I never got, that that didn't exist there. Cause you're, cause you're a dude. And as I got older, I, I very much felt that my sister was the favorite. There were a lot of different scenarios that I felt like she was chosen over me. Um, you know, we've talked about all of these things, even now that I'm an adult, the things that my sister was able to do that I was not and behaviors that were acceptable, that were forgiven, that were not for me and extra chances and, and extra effort that went in to my sister that I never felt went into me. And so that story of feeling ignored and feeling pushed to the side i very much understood i very i felt that you know and now that now that i have a son i looked at it almost differently because i could identify it but i also looked at it in in the face of a child of a young boy because these kids are like nine ten years old something like that ten or twelve maybe when they're doing this and and thinking about you know, going a younger version of myself, seeing a child, knowing that they're going through this, it's horrifically sad. It's horrible, horrible that 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 happens. That is a reality. Yeah. Not only that I went through, uh-huh. but that so many other kids are existing in. Oh, yeah. You know? And your son is closer to that age than you are. Right. He's going to reach that point quicker than you could regress to thinking about where you were at that point. Yeah. That's – and this – like I gotta tell you, it's it's been really hard to try to explain to you like why I fell in love with fiction, and I am so glad that. First off, is Stand by Me, well I should, is the body longer than Shawshank? Yeah, but yeah, not, by was, not by much. Shawshank was just about a hundred pages, uh, okay, and I think that this Stand was like, by Me was like one fifty something like that. Okay, yeah, it wasn't too many more because that's better read. I your thought. attachment to the body is. Sp- exponentially more yeah. than Shawshank. Yeah. And I think that's it's important because that that is what like real good fiction actually does. It allows you to put yourself in a place that you could never have been in, but you can definitely relate to. Yes. And it tells stories that you were never able to tell, but you can definitely go, I know exactly what he's talking about in this situation here. It's not just allegorical and you need to make weird connections. No, no, no. Fiction is told to tell your story. Right. But without you being there in that specific situation, but your story is going to be told through this. 
And this, I mean, this is wild because these are novellas. Yeah. These are novellas. These are short, short, short stories. Right. Because there's, in the literary world, like there's, there's three classifications, right? There's a short story, which is, I don't know, whatever they call these days. There's yeah. different, like, numbers of pages, numbers of words, whatever. And then there's novellas, which are, like, more rounded short stories, right? Yeah. And, and then there's novels, right? So you have short story, novella, novel. And you just smash two novellas, which essentially two novellas probably equate to about a novel, right? Yeah. You're like 10,000 words or whatever, or 50, I can't remember, but, and, but the, the fact that an author can, within the restrictions of however many pages a novella is, can write an impactful story that somebody like you can draw direct relation with yeah. and take something away from that. That's the true power of fiction. And I'm so fucking glad that you're like, because originally I feel like you had a, a concept of the world of fiction writing that wasn't the reality. Right. And if you don't enter into that world, you don't know what you're getting into. Yeah. But you've entered in. Thanks. Shout out to uh, what was first? Was it Fire on the Mountain or was it Fire on the Mountain? That was the um, last year, right? And the whole mountain burned. And the whole mountain that burned. That was the first one. That yeah. was the first one. And that really, you, you fucking... You got your your, I your like foot that in the door. I love military shit though, so yeah. that was like an easy sell. And that's, the first time around, that ain't know. that ain't great fiction. No, but you've gone from getting your foot in the door to hitting literally, iconically, no matter whatever metric or standard you want to hold to, great fiction writing. Yeah, and it it affected you, and I could tell from just you talking about it. I fucking love that. And part of the body was that the writing in this one was better. It's part. It's, it's due to the standpoint that it's told from. So the Shawshank Redemption is Red telling this story. He's writing it down. You find at the end of the book that he's writing it down after he's got out of prison before he goes to meet Andy Dufresne. So it's a convict that's writing Andy Dufresne's story before he goes to meet him. And in the body, it is Gordon Lachance as an adult who is a professional writer. That's his career writing the story of of the body so that's what you're reading is a is a stephen king a professional writer writing as a professional writer so the prose in both stories is excellent but the level of writing in the body is higher so the descriptions are better it's it's just it's a deeper mm-hmm. you know experience yeah and that's that's i think why it might i might be my favorite book show ever <laughs> it's, it's really good um, so let me ask you a question real quick before yep. you get into more writings uh, or readings um now that you've read these you've read 50 percent of this book yeah. at this point this anthology do you have plans on hitting apt people in the breathing method yeah i'll go in the back. future i'll go back yeah yeah okay i had no good, good, good. no reason to question it i love it these are the ones that shane said that the other two are fine but that these two are really like the big hitters in here and yeah. I, that's obvious you know that's why they're movies so um and he he was not wrong so the other portion of the book that i really felt that i could really relate to was chris which is the other boy who's the other kind of main character along with gordon lachance and chris lives in a neglected household um his father is a severe alcoholic that beats all of his children his mother will frequently leave for days at a time and he will be left in the care of his older brother who will just leave who will also leave so chris who is like i said 12 years old they're all about the same age is forced into a position to take care of his younger siblings and also try and take care of himself so chris is river phoenix in the movie yes his family family is pegged as a bad family because of their horrific circumstances and they're also just a bunch of crime ridden assholes so his older brother is an asshole and does a bunch of bad shit hangs out with Kiefer Sutherland and <laughs> um eyeball chambers that's his older brother so Bradley Gregg and and Gordy's the main yes that's Will Wheaton yeah okay yeah he's the main and then Chris Chambers Will Wheaton yeah oh it's Corey Feldman I said Corey Hay but it's Corey Feldman that that is Teddy Champ and so Chris also has an interaction where he steals milk money from the school and feels guilty and he returns it. When he returns it, the teacher that he turns it into never gives the money back and instead says that Chris is the one that stole it. And she uses the money to buy herself a sweater knowing that she can pin this on Chris because he's a bad seed. Dick. So this event really, it sets tidal waves through Chris's life, through how he views himself, through the way that other people are viewing him and the, the potential that he has in life. 
you know and so it's not until after this experience of them finding the body and the standoffs that they have uh with Kiefer sutherland and his gang with ace chambers and or with ace and his gang um that Chris decides to turn his life around and he, he gets as much help as possible from Gordon LaChance and ends up going to college. Chris goes to college and he starts to make something of himself and he's killed in a dispute between two other people in a restaurant in his young adulthood. Jesus. Yeah, he's standing in line in a, in a restaurant to try and get some chicken and there's two people that start to fight and he intervenes and is stabbed and dies. And so all of Gordon LaChance's friends die in different manners <sighs> in the preceding two decades or so after this experience that they have together. That explains the Family Guy montage they did at that point. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I just realized um, the most common, the common thing I've seen about this movie and this story and this book, it's from a fucking Family Guy cutaway gag. <laughs> yeah. And God. so the part of Chris's life that I really identify with was, was being left alone. Um, when, mm-hmm. when it was me and my mom and my, my sister and my grandma, eventually my grandma didn't live with us anymore and... My sister was an adult. She was like 19 or so, and so I would have been 12, and my mom started working in Seattle. And she would work in Seattle for a week or two at a time and then work in Bremerton for a week or two at a time. And she had a boyfriend that lived in Auburn, so she would just stay in Auburn, you know, for a week or for however long it was going to be. And I would be left in the care of my sister. And um, my sister would leave. She would just go. She wouldn't be gone for days at a time, but she definitely wasn't there to take care of me. You know, if I needed food or something, she would get it. She would do whatever. But but I was left largely to myself for huge portions of the day um, and then into the evening. And I would wake up and go to school and she would be there because she had come home at night and then would maybe be there or not be there when I got home from school in the afternoon. That's like latchkey kid 3.0. Yeah. Like it's latchkey kid. Yeah. But also, no, you're just your parents left. And here's your sister who is also now gone too. Yeah. So I wasn't being beaten by my other parent or anything like that. But there were also periods of time where my mom, <clears throat> she, my mom would just leave. Like my sister and I would, whatever, it would get to a point where we would be fighting a lot. It would be very tense for like a few weeks at a time. My mom would leave. She would leave for uh, a weekend or for like a week and she would turn her phone off and she wouldn't talk to anybody. And so we didn't know where she was or whether or not she was going to like, we knew she would come home, but we didn't know when she would come home. You know, but she did that, I mean, probably no more than, because I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to like, you know what I'm saying? My mom will watch this 10 years from now and be like, you fucking lied. I never did that. She did do it. Not a gang of times, no more than a dozen. Um, but somewhere or probably around 10 times that she just would just go and would yeah, turn her phone off and leave it off for the amount of time that she was gone and then would come back. Hence your connection with this character. Yeah. And that, I think the first time that happened, I probably was, because my sister would have been old enough to take care of me, so I wouldn't have been any younger than nine. But, um, yeah, around that, and at that point, my grandma still lived there, so it wasn't like, I mean, it's not great, obviously, but it wasn't like super wild. There was still an adult there, but even my grandma didn't know when she's coming home. You know, she just eventually she would come home. So that happened a few times when I was a kid. You're like close to a dozen at least yeah. from what you're yeah. saying. No more than a dozen, but probably like around 10. That's still a lot. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. Got pretty personal there. That's okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so I have just two readings from this book. One of them is a little bit longer than the other, um, but we will go through. We'll go into full audio drama mode and see if I can just run through it. Yes. So this is from page 411 to it's kind of like two pages or so. And this is one of the more descriptive parts of the book. And that's why I pulled it out because the writing is so good. And this is when the boys are crossing the train tracks over the river, right? As we know, the train starts to come and they have to run across the bridge to get to the other side. So that's what this is, the description of this particular moment. I haven't even seen the movie, but I know the scene. Yes. It's that iconic. Yeah. They sit and they wait for a long time and decide what they're going to do. And then eventually decide they're just going to cross the bridge. They dare each other, actually. That's how they go to it. Probably should have just gone when you started. Yeah. Are you pussy? (laughs) And so, yeah. So then they go. So here we go. You've heard it said his bowels turned to water. I know what that phrase means, exactly what it means. It may be the most accurate cliche ever coined. I've been scared since, badly scared, but I've never been as scared as I was in that moment, holding that hot live rail. 
It seemed that for a moment all my works below throat level just went limp and lay there in an internal faint. A thin stream of urine ran listlessly down the inside of one thigh. My mouth opened. I didn't open it. It opened it by itself, the jaw dropping like a trap door from which the hinge pins had suddenly been removed. My tongue was plastered suffocatingly against the roof of my mouth. All my muscles were locked. That was the worst. My works went limp, but my muscles were in a kind of dreadful lock bolt, and I couldn't move at all. It was only for a moment, but in the subjective time stream, it seemed forever. All sensory input became intensified, as if some power surge had occurred in the electrical flow of my brain, cranking everything up from 110 volts to 22. I could hear a plane passing in the sky somewhere near and had time to wish I was on it, just sitting in a window seat with a coke in my hand and gazing idly down at the shining line of a river whose name I did not know. I could see every little splinter and gouge in the tarred cross tie I was squatting on, and out of the corner of my eye I could see the rail itself with my hand still clutched around it, glittering insanely. The vibration from that rail sank so deeply into my hand that when I took it away it still vibrated, the nerve endings kicking each other over again and again, tingling the way a hand or foot tingles when it's been asleep and is starting to wake up. I could taste my saliva, suddenly all electric and sour and thickened to curds along my gums. And worst, somehow most horrible of all, I couldn't hear the train yet. Could I know if it was rushing at me from behind or ahead or how close it was? It was invisible. It was unannounced, except for that shaking rail. There was only that to advertise its imminent arrival. An image of Ray Brower, dreadfully mangled and thrown into a ditch somewhere like a ripped-open laundry bag, reeled before my eyes. We would join him, or at least Vern and I would, or at least I would. We had invited ourselves to our own funerals. The last thought broke the paralysis, and I shot to my feet. I probably would have looked like a jack-in-the-box to anyone watching, but to myself I felt like a boy in underwater slow motion, shooting up not through five feet of air, but rather up through five hundred feet of water, moving slowly, moving with a dreadful languidness in the water, partly grudgingly. But at last I did break the surface. I screamed, TRAIN! The last of the paralysis fell for me and I began to run. Vern's head jerked back over his shoulder. The surprise that distorted his face was almost comically exaggerated, written as large as the letters in a Dick and Jane primer. He saw me break into a clumsy, shambling run, dancing from one horribly high cross-tie to the next, and knew I wasn't joking. He began to run himself. Far ahead, I could see Chris stepping off the ties and onto the solid, safe embankment, and I hated him with a sudden bright green hate as juicy and as bitter as the sap in an April leaf. He was safe. That fucker was safe. I watched him drop to his knees and grab a rail. My left foot almost slipped into the yaw beneath me. I flailed with my arms, my eyes as hot as ball bearings in some runaway piece of machinery, got my balance, and ran on. Now I was right behind Vern. We were past the halfway point, and for the first time I heard the train. It was coming from behind us, coming from the Castle Rock side of the river. It was a low, rumbling noise that began to rise silently and sort itself into the diesel thrum of the engine and the higher, more sinister sound of big grooved wheels turning heavily on the rails. Ah, oh, shit, Vern screamed. Run, you pussy, I yelled. I thumped him on the back. I can't. I'll fall. Run faster. Aw, oh, shit. But he ran faster. A shambling scarecrow with a bare, sunburnt back and the collar of her shirt swinging and dangling below his butt. I could see the sweat standing on his peeling shoulder blades, standing out in perfect little beads. I could see the fine down on the nape of his neck. His muscles clenched and loosened and clenched and loosened and clenched and loosened. His spine stood out in a series of knobs, each knob casting its own crescent-shaped shadow. I could see that these knobs grew closer together as they approached his neck. He was still holding his bedroll, and I was still holding mine. Vern's feet thudded on the cross ties. He almost missed one, lunged forward with his arms out, and I whacked him on the back end to keep him going. Gordy, I can't! Aw, oh, shit! Run faster, dickface! I bellowed, and I enjoyed this? Yeah, in a peculiar, self-destructive way I think I have experienced since only when completely and utterly drunk, I was. I was driving Vern Tessio like a drover getting a particularly fine cow to market. Maybe he was enjoying his own in the fear of same way. Bawling like that self-same cow hollering and sweating, his ribcage rising and falling like the bellows of a blacksmith in a speed trip, clumsily keeping his foot lurging ahead. The train was very loud now, its engine deepening to a steady rumble. Its whistle sounded as it crossed the junction point where we had paused to chunk cinders at the rail flag. I had gotten my hellhound, like it or not. 
I kept waiting for the trestle to start shaking under my feet. When that happened, it would be right behind us. Go faster, Vern! Faster! Oh god, Gordy! Oh god, I can't! Oh shit! The freight's electric horn suddenly spanked in the air into a hundred pieces with one loud blast, making everything you ever saw in a movie or a comic book or one of your own daydreams fly apart, letting you know that both the heroes and the cowards really heard when the death flew at them. I'm telling you. What the fuck, man? I'm telling you. Transported. You can't do that on screen. I'm telling you. You cannot do that no, on screen. even watching them run across the bridge is not the same as reading in this book. Hard fucking no. Not the same. That was, I mean, clap, 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 buddy. That was good. Thank you very Did much. pretty good with the voices, too. You know, I mean, the transitions, <laughs> it, was, it was fine. Um, let's see here. I have one final reading. Can't believe you just did that. We're out here. Fucking nailed it. Okay. I just want to make sure I find the proper ending point. There. Okay, there it is. I have the whole thing keyed out. All right, so this is my last reading, and this is for when Gordon is looking at the body of Ray Brower. So they are there. They've already had the interaction with Ace. They've had the standoff with a the gun. They've done all these things, right? Now he's taking a moment to reflect, and he's kind of just think, taking in everything that he's looking at, right? This is for page 468. I think he was down there and relatively intact instead of up there between the rails and completely mangled because he was trying to get out of the way when the train hit him, knocking him head over heels. He had landed with his head pointed toward the tracks, arms over his head like a diver about to execute. He had landed in this boggy cup of land that was becoming a small swamp. His hair was a dark, reddish color. The moisture in the air had made it curl slightly at the ends. There was blood in it, but not a great deal, not a gross amount. The ants were grosser. He was wearing a solid colored dark green t-shirt and blue jeans. His feet were bare and a few feet behind him caught an all tall blackberry bramble. I saw a pair of filthy low top kids. For a moment I was puzzled. Why was he here and his tennies there? Then I realized and the realization was like a dirty punch below the belt. My wife, my kids, my friends, they all think that having an imagination like mine must be quite nice. Aside from making all this dough, I can have a little mind movie whenever things get dull. Mostly they're right. But every now and then it turns out and turns around and bites the shit out of you with these long teeth. Teeth that have been filed to points like the teeth of a cannibal. You see things you just as soon not see. Things that keep you awake until first light. I saw one of those things now. Saw it with an absolute clarity and certainty. He had been knocked spang out of his kids. The train had knocked him out of his kids just as it had knocked him the life out of his body. That finally rammed it all the way home for me. The kid was dead. The kid wasn't sick. The kid wasn't sleeping. The kid wasn't going to get up in the morning anymore or get the runs from eating too many apples or catch poison ivy or wear out the eraser on the end of his Ticonderoga number two during a hard math test. The kid was dead. Stone dead. The kid was never going to go out bottling with his friends in the spring, gunny sack over his shoulder to pick up the returnables, retreating snow uncovered. The kid wasn't going to wake up at 2 o'clock a.m. on the morning of November 1st this year, run to the bathroom, and vomit up a big glurt of cheap Halloween candy. The kid wasn't going to pull a single girl's braid in homeroom. The kid wasn't going to give a bloody nose or get one. This kid can't, don't, won't, never, shouldn't, and wouldn't, and couldn't. He was the side of the battery where the terminal says neg. The fuse you have to put a penny in. The waste basket by the teacher's desk, which always smells of wood shavings from the sharpener and dead orange peels from lunch. The haunted house outside a town where the windows are crashed out, the no trespassing signs whipped across the fields, the attic full of bats, the cellar full of rats. The kid was dead, mister, ma'am, young sir, little miss. I could go on all day and never get it right about the distance between his bare feet on the ground and his dirty kids hanging in the bushes. It was 30 plus inches. It was a Google of light years. The kid was disconnected from his kids beyond all hope of reconciliation. He was dead. One of the best books I have ever read. No question. Absolutely no question. So I can't recommend that book any more than I just did. And those two selections, those are two of the most moving pieces that I pulled out of there. There are tons more. Those are the two pieces that sold me on this book. I'm sold already. Yes. Fuck. Fuck. That's powerful writing. Yes. So with that, we will crush quickly the preview portion 
of this book. This is the By the People by Charles Murray. Right there, right? This is a, a great book so far. I've already started. Obviously, we're into the month of May, so I'm a couple of days into this book. It's fantastic. I have, I mean, tons of selections already underlined and bracketed out because it's that good. It's, it's absolutely incredible already. Charles Murray is an enormous libertarian thinker. He's very prevalent. He's written a ton of books, and he is often quoted by different libertarian and anarchist thinkers when they are talking about the formation of the United States and how it will look in the future. So like I said, I'm pretty sure that I bought this book when I was with Colin and Port Townsend, mm -hmm. and then I had it on the shelf in my house when I was making the new stack. This is perfect. So this book, Charles Murray, we can go. So that's the why as far as I did it. It was published in, let's see here. I just went over this with you the other day, actually. Yes. This one is in 2015, copyright Cox and Murray Incorporated, which means that he published his own fucking book, I think. Because he's a beast. Good for him. So we'll read the back of it. I will go over the page and paste. We'll do a fancy reading and then we'll move on. Back of this book. In this provocative book, acclaimed social scientist and best-selling author Charles Murray shows us why we can no longer hope to roll back the power of the federal government through the standard political process. The Constitution is broken in ways that cannot be fixed even by a sympathetic Supreme Court. There's good news beyond the beltway. Technology is siphoning power from bureaucratic government agencies and putting it in the hands of individuals and communities. People across the political spectrum are increasingly alienated from a regulatory state that nakedly serves its own interest rather than those of the ordinary people. Even better, the federal government has a fatal weakness. It can get away with its seemingly infinite laws and regulations only if the overwhelming majority of us voluntarily comply with them. Murray describes how civil disobedience backstopped by legal defense funds can make large portions of the $180,000 page federal code of regulations unenforceable through a targeted program that identifies arbitrary regulations that capriciously tell us what to do. Americans have it within their power to make the federal government an insurable, an insurable hazard. Similar to the way we insecure, we insure against hurricanes and floods, leaving us again free to live our lives as we see fit. I'm into it. Yes. I'm into it. This And this came out in 2016. 2015. 2015. Came out in 2016. Yeah, it had copyright 2015. So Because I was going to say, previously to this, the only book I, I knew he was known for was The Bell Curve, very controversial yeah. kind of getting into stuff like that i didn't realize he was as base as this yeah this because i mean just reading that back cover i'm like fucking word dude yes word i'm excited yeah. i'm excited so we can go page and pace it's may there's 31 days in may and let me find there's a bunch of sources in here obviously the bibliography is large laudable so let me go to the actual last page acknowledgments in conclusion it's 264 pages divided by 31 days. And that will give us our page and pace. It's 8.5. Totally doable. 8.5 is nothing. That's that's cake. So we're used to 10 on this bitch. Yeah, right? yeah. 10 is like about average. So 8.5 is totally golden. I think that's great. That will be no problem. Um, the book after this is the double, right? June and July is D-Day by Ambrose. So be prepared for that one. That's going to be more of a push, but I think it's going to be good no matter what. So now we will pull a random reading. Go in here. Okay. It's from page. Oh, that's a quote from something else. So let's go to page 160. Okay. The administrative law judges hearing those dozens of cases are able to throw out all of them because the Supreme Court was has Jesus Christ. Let me start over. The administrative law judges hearing those dozens of cases are able to throw them all out because the Supreme Court has set such a high bar for finding that an agency has been arbitrary and capricious. Namely, the court said in 1971 that it would not find an agency action arbitrary and capricious if it was, quote, based on a consideration of the relevant factors, unquote, and there has not been a clear error of judgment. Imagine you are in an attorney trying to demonstrate that an action was arbitrary and capricious. How are you to prove the agency did not consider, quote, the relevant factors, unquote, in the face of the agency's paper trail saying that it did? How are you to prove that the agency made a clear error in judgment, in effect, a judgment that has no rational basis whatsoever? Answer, it's next to impossible. Lest he leave defendants any chance at all, Justice Thurgood Marshall, writing for the 6-2 majority in Citizens to Preserve Overton Park versus Volpe, continued, quote, Although this inquiry into the facts is to be searching and careful, the ultimate standard of review is a narrow one. The court is not empowered to substitute its judgment for that of the agency. Jesus Christ, unquote. The sentence I italicized gets to the heart of the problem that explains a great deal of what has gone wrong with the regulatory state. 
the difference that the, the deference that the courts have wrongly accorded to the regulators. I discussed the origins of the deference in Chapter 3. To recapitulate, the progressives advocates for the regulatory state saw regulators as special people, disinterested experts in an arcane topics about which elected legislators were ignorant, and able to make technically correct decisions to advance the public interest without fear or favor. None of those advocates seemed to consider the possibility that regulators were as likely to make the mistakes as anybody else, as likely to have political bias as anybody else, and as likely to abuse power as anybody else. The idealistic view of regulators persisted, and it's reflected in the deference that has been given to regulators by Supreme Court jurisprudence. To this day, the opinions of the bureaucrats and the regulatory agencies count for more in the eyes of federal courts than the opinions of experts in the private sector. Let me add this two cents to Super that. wordy, but... Super wordy, but what he's talking about is essentially the Chevron deference case. And last summer, we had a Supreme Court decision that ruled along the outskirts of that, saying that certain executive agencies had too much deference yeah. in the way they conducted their regulation and so on. And we have another Supreme Court case that's going to be taken up in the in the in the upcoming year that will also add on to that so it's very coincidental that that was the random reading you fucking pulled out randomly which is hilarious yeah because there might actually be some more supreme court action around that particular issue yeah we'll just say the in next year's session so that'll be something we'll we'll talk about on the podcast and i'm sure all that stuff but very very like serendipitous that you just ripped that shit out of fucking nowhere yeah Yeah. so as you can see it's very wordy like i said but of what i've read already it's it's extremely good it's very very valuable and i think it'll this type of stuff generally translates to good writing for me like Mm -hmm. usually the articles that i write after i've read this type of stuff are really good and so i'm excited for that that translation it's also my first article on these motherfucking elf bars hey oh it wasn't my second but that last one that i wrote about crowder i think turned out really good yes so now we're talking about fucking articles in the book club but here we are well i will say just to that point um if you are following along with the book club um hashtag sos book club on twitter You've already shared some some pages from this book already. Yes, that have already gotten me really really excited about this. Yes, so make sure you're following over along on Twitter at Salt of the Street. That's right. And hashtag SOS Book Hub is a shortcut to those posts. That's so right. Be sure to be following those because you've already shared some hardcore fucking libertarian ass knowledge. Yes. Which I again, the only thing I knew about Charles Murray before this particular thing and before you started posting about it was his his book the bell curve yeah and that was i mean we were, we were talking about that shit like two or three years ago in right. the, the world of you know what's going on so i'm very i'm i'm probably going to pick this shit up on audible because i got credits and it's going to happen so i'm going to hit that shit it's very good because mostly because those those pages you'd be sharing on hashtag, fire, dude. on hashtag sos book club on twitter have been fire yes so with that We'll call this one to a close. These books are great. I'm excited to finish up by the people. And with that, I will see you guys next time. I am Donovan from Salt of the Streets. You can find me at Salt of the Street on Twitter and at Alpaca underscore Donovan on Instagram. Calling my co-host for these shows is at Big Bird Offy on both those things. You can find all this at saltofthestreets.com, including our Patreon. Patreon.com slash salt of the streets, where you can find the articles that I was just talking about. Go there. Share this. Like it. Comment. Tell all your friends about it. Reading is good for you. It's very, very, very good for you. Audiobooks are great. I shouldn't call it all the time for it. Reading is where it's at. This yep. is what grows your brain. The knowledge is awesome from the audiobooks. This is what grows your brain. Read the fucking book. With that, fact check true. Keep booking it up, everybody. I love you. <laughs>